If anyone's interested, I noticed in the bar that it is currently three nothing Red Sox over the Yankees in the fourth. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event I founded at LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens in April 2015. In this episode of our podcast, you're going to hear the readings from our October 9th, 2018 event, which featured Jimmy Kajolis, Sarah Weinman, and Cutter Wood. At LIC Reading Series, we are very proud to be in Queens, New York. So before each of our readers reads from their work, I asked them to share a brief anecdote about Queens, and you're going to hear that in this episode. If you want to hear the panel discussion from October 9, 2018, just listen to our next episode. And if you want to learn more about LIC Reading Series, just go to licreadingseries.com. And now let's start our readings from October 2018, beginning with Cutter Wood. Cutter Wood completed an MFA in nonfiction writing at the University of Iowa. His work has appeared in Harper's, American Short Fiction, the Paris Review Daily, and other publications. For his first book, Love and Death in the Sunshine State, he was awarded fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts and Breadloaf Writers Conference. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife and daughter. He made it all the way to Queens tonight, which is great. Thank you. Um, John Degada says that Love and Death in the Sunshine State is remarkably tender and haunting. Jennifer Percy says it's a striking blend of reportage, memoir, and confession. And Publishers Weekly says that Cutterwood combines elements of true crime with the techniques of contemporary fiction in his bold debut. And readers of literary nonfiction will find a promising new writer. Now, I found this fascinating. I was reading something you wrote in the Paris Review where you said you never intended to write a true crime book. But this is what you wrote. When you look across the table and begin to see yourself in the person sitting there, that's where the story begins. So let's see what that means. Come on up to the microphone, Cutter Wood. Thank you, Catherine and Carl and Nadine and... Barry from the Astoria Bookshop, and I didn't meet you yet. Gus, I loved you from the beginning. I saw you carrying equipment in, and that's always a person you have to love. Um, and the other readers, too. Uh, Sarah, oh my God, I have to look at your book. There are so many names that I just learned. And Jimmy. And, and Jason introduced me to all you wonderful Wait, folks. I would love to do that. Wouldn't that be the best? That would just be the best. All right. So I'm just going to go into this and and give you this anecdote about Queens, uh, which is not a great anecdote. It's just a, it's about a mango. Yeah. Do you guys remember the old Saturday Night Live skit with Chris Kattan called Mango? Yes. Um, it's not that. No. So when I first moved here, I had this really good friend who is half Indian and half Palestinian, and she'd always told me about this mango, this legendary mango variety called the Alfonso mango, which she always said was the king of mangoes. She would just say that. She would not even say the word Alfonso. She would just talk about the king of mangoes. And so I determined one year in mango season to try and track down uh, one of these Alfonso mangoes and surprise her. And I looked all over the place, you know, scoured the internet. It's impossible to get them there. You can't import them legally into the United States, all this stuff. They don't, they don't travel well. They're too delicate. Their flesh is too beautiful. Um, until finally I ended up in Queens, in Jackson Heights, 
And there they just had a rack upon rack at this little tiny grocery store of these illegal mangoes. Um, and that's all. But I feel like it, it works for Queens. You know, there's always something really surprising and delightful in Queens. Um, and they are amazing mangoes. Did anybody here like mangoes? Okay, yeah. <laughs> Wait, who are you who don't like mangoes? Uh, this one has none of the stringiness. It's very, very tender. It's great. It's great. I strongly recommend. Alfonso? Yeah. Wait, who said what's it called? Okay. <laughs> Were you whistling before? Yeah. Apparently I'm hard to spot. You blend right in. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to read a little bit from this book, Love and Death in the Sunshine State. Uh, it came out in spring, and there's not much you need to know except uh, it's about uh, this woman's disappearance down in Florida. She really just kind of went, just vanished one night back in November 2008, almost exactly 10 years ago now. Um and quickly kind of turned into a homicide investigation, and I, I was kind of involved in investigating it, and was even briefly a suspect, hence that quote that you mentioned. So I'll just jump right in, and we can maybe talk later if there are any questions. Can everybody hear me okay? Do we even need the mic? You probably want the mic. You want the mic. Okay. So... The island is about seven miles long. Nowhere is it higher than 10 feet above sea level, and at its widest it is hardly a 1,000 yards across. It floats like a shin bone in the Gulf of Mexico, so long and flat and narrow that when seen from a distance, the land hardly interrupts the surface of the water. Still, there are houses on Anna Maria. Several thousand people live there, and many more rent bungalows or rooms so they can spend some portion of their year in such proximity to the sea. The back of the island is laced with dead-end canals, and yeah, though you have to drive to Cortez over on the mainland to find anyone who actually fishes for a living, the island's many boats and docks keep the idea vivid. When the tide goes out, the cement walls reveal a crusting, cement walls of the canals reveal a crusting of algae and oyster shells, and at dawn, someone is always motoring for deeper water. One might as well fish. There isn't much else to do. The motel remains in my mind exactly as it was that first January, small and dreary and bright. A few pale yellow buildings squatted in the sun, while above them a handful of palms nodded in conference. In a cage by the office door, a green parrot carried on its endless and solitary conversation. Aside from myself, there were only two other people present, a teenage girl at the reception desk erasing answers from a crossword, and an old German woman folding towels severely in a latticed hut by the pool. The room I was given was sparsely furnished. In one corner, a small black refrigerator rattled off the minutes of the afternoon. A comforter splotched in pastels had been spread across the bed, and lying there, I could almost reach out and flush the toilet. My college graduation occurred a few months previously, a celebratory event that had left me in a state of highly animated confusion. In all my years of education, in that succession of desks, and the thousands of cumulative hours stationed before them, and in the countless fancies I'd entertained there, 
head turned, eyes drawn through the window to the trees beyond. I had somehow failed to foresee that moment when, dressed in a black cap and gown, I would no longer be going to school. During that abortive Floridian vacation, ostensibly a visit with extended family, I spent much of each day adrift in their talk. Conversations that passed through various topics, but eventually returned to the essential touchstones of real estate and physical ailments and the weather up north. At some moment, someone said we had better hit the beach if we wanted to to catch the sunset. As I walked along the sand, trailing those familiar figures, I had the sensation of a return to childhood. The flatness of the sea, the incessant back and forth of the waves, these seemed to have been called up from another time. And as we picked our way around the ruins of sandcastles, I felt an acute uneasiness. Sidestepping the dissolving turrets and towers with their seaweed flags, I thought I saw in those shapes the futility of all human efforts. And by substituting human for my, I was able almost entirely to sidestep as well the uncomfortable topic of my own futile efforts. That's my way of saying that I was still waiting tables after graduating college. There had been no place for me at the family house, so I'd taken a room at the motel. I spent the nights on my own, taking long forced marches up and down the streets, and sitting on my bed with a book or the local paper and a styrofoam container of fried mullet, maligning the future that refused to coalesce warm and graspable before me. The utter inanity of the trip was crystallized by a visit to a distant relative in St. Petersburg on our final day. An old Italian man, he concluded the tour of his home by walking me out to the dock. The the bay stretched before us, and a large blue heron cocked its head at our approach. She comes every day, he said. It's my mother's spirit. He reached out a hand. The bird turned one eye on the empty palm, spread its wings with disdain, and flew off across the water. He shrugged. Usually I bring capicola. My uncle is so Italian. I can hardly bear it sometimes. Toward the end of January, I left with no intention of ever returning to the island or the state. And this would have been the case, I think, if some months later I had not received in the mail a clipping from the Anna Maria newspaper. A grainy color photograph showed a few palms outlined against a massive fire. Sent by my mother, it was a story about the burning of the motel, where I had been a guest. The evening of the fire had been unusually cold, according to the article. There was a strong wind and the sky was empty of clouds. As the sun began to drop into the gulf, the water turned bronze, and a woman driving home didn't understand at first how the sun could be reflected so brightly in the windows of the motel. Only when she drew near did she realize it was flames. As happens sometimes at the lower latitudes, it was dark before anyone realized. And when the fire department arrived, shortly after seven, one of the motel's buildings was wholly engulfed. The roof groaned, The palms crackled and swayed. The wind came in steady off the water, carrying smoke across the island, and for blocks around the air had the sharp smell of melted plastic and polyester. Their gear clanking, a few firefighters walked the perimeter to assess the situation, while the rest began the work of unfurling the heavy hoses and loosening the hydrant's caps. A crowd had already begun to form. Couples out for a sunset stroll, Retirees on their way home from an early dinner. Children on bicycles and scooters with nothing better to do. 
Soon a car from the sheriff's office arrived, and a thin deputy began asking the onlookers for their own safety to step back, please, and allow the crew to do its work. The rumor of arson always attends a fire, and this was no exception. The crowd murmured, and when a van pulled up from the local TV station, it was clear the reporter hadn't come to tell a story about an accidental blaze. The deputy smoothed the air with his hands. This was a fire, nothing more and nothing less, and there was not yet any reason to believe it was a case of arson. But, he said, you had to admit it was suspicious considering the circumstances. The circumstances, in the most immediate sense, were a white 2000 Pontiac convertible. It belonged to one of the owners of the motel, a woman named Sabina Musel Bueller, and it currently sat in the sheriff's impound lot. It was not a particularly nice car, but it contained a good deal of blood. And this, combined with the fact that the woman had been missing for nearly two weeks, gave a certain amount of credence to the more macabre fantasies of the crowd. As the fire department began sending sprays of water onto the building's roof, an elderly woman still dressed in her pajamas declared that she was frightened and was leaving the island this instant. And for a long while after, she continued to make this declaration to anyone in earshot. It was hard not to stay around and skim the gossip. Who had set the fire after all, and more importantly, why? For a time, the onlookers pursued these questions, picking up the various theories, turning them this way and that, and putting them back down again. But it was a cold night for Florida, and windy, and getting late, and there are limits to what reasonable people can be expected to ask themselves after dark. A little past eight, the fire chief declared the blaze under control, and the people in ones and twos began picking out paths home along the puddled road. A whole town runs to be present at a fire, as Hazlitt notes, but the spectator hardly exults to see it extinguished. Thank you. And next up is oh, you're going to tell them. Oh, okay. She's got to introduce you. And we gotta give some more more applause for Cutter. You gotta don't cut off your applause. I think it's kind of great that you had this uh, post-graduation, what am I doing with my life? Oh, God, a fire. Let's investigate this. That's a way to jump into life. <laughs> really, really good for it. Also, the fact that there was a bird with a spirit, I feel kind of is an interesting segue to our next reader. So thank you for planning that. That was really good. Um, and for the mango tip, and hopefully we don't all get that grocer in trouble now because we go bum rush the store. And you're like, we hear you have illegal mangoes. Young Jimmy Cajolis. Did I do that right? Yes, Jimmy Cajolis. Jimmy Cajolis was born in Jackson, Mississippi. He spent years traveling the country playing music before earning his MFA from the University of Mississippi. He is the author of Golden Line by HarperCollins, The Good Demon, which we have here, published by Abrams, and the forthcoming novel, You Are Busy, the Rambling, to be published by HarperCollins. He lives in New York. I want to tell you that both Kirkus and Publishers Weekly, and I believe Booklist, gave you a starred review for this book, which is like, really great, guys. Heads up. Really awesome. Um, Kirkus says it has evocative language that will grab readers by the throat. Ouch. True. Publishers Weekly says it has a careful build and terrifying first-person narration. 
and that Kajulis offers up a story interested in free will that is as gently ominous as a silent car coasting over a road on a hot, humid summer night. It's real creepy. I have to tell you, when I was reading it, and it's so good, um, it's so effective. I live in a house that's over 100 years old, and I swear, everywhere, everywhere I looked, I was like, what the fucking, just a fucking spirit over there. There's, I can see stuff out of the corner of my eye. They got to like stop reading this book at night, but I couldn't stop because it was really good. So let's give a warm round of applause for Jimmy. I'm going to try to sit. I don't know why I said it, like, tried it. I can just sit. Um, thank, thank you for that introduction. That was so nice. And thank you for having me here. Um, it's an honor to be here. And I'm nervous, and I'm going to try not to do the hand fidgety thing that I'm doing. Okay. Ooh, all right. Thank you. Yeah, okay. Anecdote. Um, whenever I don't know what to do, I talk. I tell a story about my dad, which that's already boring. Also, write everything that I say down so that I won't ramble. Um, I even wrote, thanks for having me. It's an um, Okay, um, all right. My dad was born in Mississippi of um, Greek immigrant parents. Um, somehow he still managed to grow up extremely Southern. He's like a Southern guy. If you met him, you would be like, wow, that's a Southern guy. Um, you know, he like uh, talks very loudly to everyone he meets on the street. He'll come up to you, you know, like he's, he's the guy talking to you in the bathroom, asking you about the football score. That's my dad. Um, he's great um, but when I told him I was moving to New York he was furious um, I don't think he'd been above Tennessee um, more in, in his life maybe like twice ever and he was like what do you want to do there what are you thinking so eventually um, you know he was, came time for him and my mom to come up for a visit and you know immediately my dad steps off the plane and hates it here he hates, he's like, it's too loud, there's too many cars, why are there so many people, um, where are the trees, it, it's this whole thing, and I can just tell that he's going to hate everything. Um, I took him to Washington Square Park, he's like, you know, I'm like, oh, you're going to love this, they're people, they're happy people sitting around, and he's like, why isn't everyone at work? And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I took him to the Met. At the Met, he was like we were walking through everything for like an hour, and then he was like, "Is this shit real?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, Dad, it's a museum. These are this is not a replica. This is." And he was like, well, "Why is why is it all here?" And that's a good question. <laughs> um, anyway, I, I feel like I'm just ragging on him. He's a great guy. You would all love him. But anyway, I didn't know what to do, so I finally I was like, "We're I'm going to take him to." This restaurant that I like, Gregory's Corner Taverna in Astoria. Have you guys ever been there? It's awesome. Um, so we get him there. It's a, it's a lot. And he sits down and, like, order whatever you want. And he looks at the menu, and I see him just a little bit smile. He's like, oh. So then, like, he orders everything that my yaya used to cook him. And then he's like, starts speaking in Greek to all like the Greek people in there, which is something I've never really heard him do because he always claims he doesn't speak Greek. And then, 
And my dad has this way of eating that is awesome. It's my favorite thing about my dad. He eats with precision and passion. And he won't talk when he's eating. He doesn't do that. He just eats. And like, if you say something to him, he'll like look up, like <laughs> shocked. Um, anyway, he eats. He doesn't say a word. He doesn't say that he's enjoying it. He doesn't say anything. And then um, as we leave, he looks over to me and he's like, New York ain't bad. <laughs> so that, uh, okay. An anecdote. Success. Was that too mean to my dad? Lynn is my dad. Okay, cool. All right. Pete, who's the guy? Okay. Um, my book is narrated by a 16-year-old girl named Claire who has um, recently had a demon cast out of her, and she is not happy about that because the demon was her best friend. Um, so I'm just going to start reading from the beginning, if that's okay. Um, I sat on the front porch swing, chain-smoking parliament lights, trying to read a book. I wasn't supposed to smoke anymore, but what else could my mom and stepdad do to me? I was already grounded from everything imaginable, and now she was gone. There was nothing left for them to take away. It had been one month since they cast her out of me. It wasn't an exorcism, because that's what Catholics do. And the reverend and his son weren't any Catholics. They were Baptists. So they called it a deliverance. They said that they came to deliver me from evil. What they did was bust down my door and steal her away from me. They rebuked her, that was the reverend's word, to keep her from coming back to me again. Since then, it had been one miserable month of crawling through the days, weeping myself to sleep, yanking upright in the night to scream and holler, one month of being so unbearably alone. I was trying to read my favorite book, this biography of John D. that I bought at Uncle Mike's used and collectible when I was just a kid. It was an old book, written in a super flowery style with big world words that swirled all over the page and fascinated me when I was little. Words that I never heard anyone use in real life and never would. But John D. wasn't cutting it today. Nothing could. My dog, Eyeball, came running up and licked my bare feet, and even that sent me shaking. I missed her, was all. I missed my best friend. Closer than that. She was my only. That's what we called each other, our most secret name ever since I was a little girl. My only. Every time she called me that, I felt a glow in my chest, and I knew that I was not alone in the world. But now I would never feel that glow again. My hands started to tremble, and I dropped my cigarette in my lap. It left a small burn mark on my jeans. That was okay because they were ripped all over anyhow, a little too tight, but still my favorite pair. I wore my big black dead moon shirt, too, the most comfortable shirt I'd ever owned and I still felt shaky, awkward, like my skin was trying to crawl right off my body. I was about to say fuck it, to break down and start cussing the sun just for shining down on me, when I saw a boy come walking a bike up my driveway. Not a boy, a teenager, someone maybe my age. He was wearing khakis and a polo shirt, and he looked terrified. Can I help you? I said. He just stood there and stared at me. Hello, I said. Why do you have a bike? Are you selling magazine subscriptions or something? That seemed to snap him out of it. No, he said. I'm Roy. I'm from the other day. Last month. I mean, you know when. He waved his hand a little and trailed off. Holy shit. This was the reverend's son, the kid who helped him take her away from me. I didn't recognize him without the suit 
without all the authority his dad commanded, the nerve he had showing up here. Is this like a courtesy visit or something? I said. No, he said. He dropped his bike to the ground and walked toward the porch, hesitating at the steps, then climbing them anyway. He stood just a few feet away from me, gawking. Like I said, the nerve of this kid. You're Clarabella, right? He said, and stuck his hand out stiffly, like he wanted me to shake it. I didn't. Nobody calls me that except my mom, I said. It sounds so spinstery. I go by Claire. Oh, he said. Well, can I call you Clarabella anyway? No. Um, it's, it's a real nice day out. Sort of, I said. Too hot. I passed a turkey vulture on the way up here. It had a frog in its mouth. A big one. You could see its legs hanging out and everything. I squinted my eyes and stared at him. He seemed like one of those homeschool kids who had never been let out of church for more than an hour. The kind who had no friends and couldn't talk about anything except Jesus and the weather. He was probably the most naive person on earth you could tell just by looking at him. It was almost endearing. Almost. What are you reading, he said. It's a biography of John D. He's maybe my favorite person in all of history. I've never heard of him. John D. was an advisor to Queen Elizabeth I and probably the most famous sorcerer in the whole world. Doesn't that mean he was, you know, a bad guy? It took everything in me not to fall out laughing, but I held it in. I lit a cigarette and drew, and took a drag real slow. He watched me in a kind of awe, like he couldn't believe I was just out here smoking cigarettes, like it was some kind of a felony. I decided to fuck with him a little. Well, maybe he was bad, I said. It depends on who you're asking. He got accused of trying to murder Queen Elizabeth with black magic, so they chucked him in jail. Other people say he was a genius inventor and a mathematician, and he transcribed the entire language of the angels. What do you think about that? You have green eyes, he said. I'm going to go get my stepdad. No, he said. I mean, you don't have to do that. I got off the swing and walked past him across the porch into the screen door. It's fine, I said. He's in the back, so it'll just take a minute. No, wait, please. I turned to look at him. The sun lit up my face, and I held a palm above my eyes to shield them. Why did you come here, I said. What is it exactly that you want? We passed a second of silence like that, with me staring at him and him looking awkward, searching for words. Just, you know, he put his hands in his pockets and pulled them back out. To make sure you were okay, that all was well, and stuff, after the thing we did, my dad did, you know, I could have killed him. I could have ripped his throat right out of his body. It's fine, I said, and my stepdad will want to talk to you. He's the one who called you guys in the first place. I pushed the screen door open and turned to walk into the house. What was it like, he blurted. I froze. Pardon me? What did it feel like, he said, you know, to have a demon in you? No one had ever asked me that before. Not my mom or stepdad, not a single other person. No one had ever asked me my own opinion about it. No one had ever cared to. I stepped back on the porch and shut the door behind me. I leaned in close to him, so close he could have touched me. He could have put his face to mine if he wanted. His eyes stared right into my own, like he was searching for something in me, as if there was some trace of her still left inside. I reached my hand out, just lightly, and grazed my fingertips over his forearm. 
It's like you're wearing new skin, I said, like a soft thing is petting you all the time. I understand, he said. No, I said, I don't think you do. Thank you. Give it up again for Jimmy Cajolis. Um, your anecdote was amazing. In your comic time, he's like, Mwah. that was, the, I, you don't know how it happened. Well, it was great. You, we recorded it. You can listen if you want. It was really good. Um, <laughs> I loved it. Also, so Jimmy's book's so great because it starts off, he's like, oh yeah, it's a couple teenagers talking on a porch, whatever, you know, like the creep level just keeps going up and up. It's, oh my God, it's a really good book. So great, great for the Halloween season too. Um, we're going to have one more reader and then our panel discussion. And we have right now Sarah Weinman. All right. Sarah Weinman is the editor of Women Crime Writers, Eight Suspense Novels of the 1940s and 50s, out from Library of America, and Troubled Daughters, Twisted Wives, out on Penguins. It's a good title, right? She covers book publishing for Publishers Marketplace and has written for the New York Times, the New Republic, the Guardian, and BuzzFeed, among other outlets. Her book, The Real Lolita, is here. It was published by Echo in September of this year. She also lives in Brooklyn. Do you guys, you guys all live in Brooklyn? It's nice to have you here. No, no, it's cool. They made it. They made it. Um, also, heads up, Sarah, I think, is one of the fastest readers I've ever encountered in my life. Um, she's read everything. It is useful. I'm jealous. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so uh, Washington Post says in The Real Lolita that Weinman has become something of a literary detective herself by combing through court documents and newspaper accounts and interviewing surviving friends and family members. Weinman has evocatively reconstructed Sally's nightmare as well as the sexual mores of mid 20th century America. Heads up. I'm sure Sarah will introduce the book, but Sally Horner character in the book. I'm going to let Sarah talk about who Sally Horner is. Um, LA review of books says it's an utterly engrossing book and that Wyman excels at dense and layered characterizations. Now, the real Lolita, I mean, who's heard of this book called Lolita? It's like a little-known author named Bokov. Uh, you know, I think that everybody has either read Lolita or thinks they have or <laughs> knows enough about it to be like, oh, yeah, Lolita. Yeah. Um, but you don't know everything about Lolita because you got to read this book about a true story and possibly inspiration for Lolita. It's amazing, amazing reportage in here. Let's give it up for Sarah Weinman. We'll bring her to the mic. I too am going to sit. And Catherine, that was one hell of an introduction. Uh, so obviously I'm going to read from my book in a second, but like everyone else, I wanted to talk a little bit about Queens. I actually come here for, for Brooklynite. I'm here a fair amount. Sometimes I'm drinking at other bars in Long Island City, shopping at a story books or book culture or read. I've actually read at uh, Q and Willow, which is the Q Garden shop. And this is a good time to preface what I'm about to say. So Q Gardens neighborhood, many of you may know, is different from Q Gardens Hills. 
And the reason I bring up Kew Gardens Hills is because the piece that I wrote for this magazine called Hazlitt, which was where I originally published the magazine version of The Real Alita, which then expanded into the book, the next piece that I wrote for them was about a case that I was particularly obsessed with that happened in Kew, in Kew Gardens Hills. Uh, one version of the story referred to her as the Medea of Kew Gardens Hills. Her name was Alice Crimmins, and then uh, the summer of 1965, her two children, um, Eddie Jr. and Alice Marie, went missing and then were subsequently found murdered. And she was tried and convicted twice, and both times the convictions were overturned. And the reason that I was kind of obsessed with the case is because it was, in a way, less about the murders of the children and more about indicting Alice for how she was, what she wore, what her personality was, the fact that she was a divorcee around town and sleeping with a lot of guys. And in 1965, this was just not something you did, and especially in a place like Kew Gardens Hills that was very, very conservative. And so I decided I wanted to report it out and see what Kew Gardens Hills was like. And I found out that I had distant relatives living there who were... um, modern Orthodox Jewish. And so I stayed uh, for Shabbat with them. And I convinced my cousins, and I I think I phrased it as, do you want to go by this apartment where this lady lived and her kids were murdered? And they were like, sure, we'll go. (laughs) So it was a Saturday afternoon, which meant because they were religious, although I'm not, um, I couldn't take photographs. But I'd seen this apartment building before and one thing that I like to do when I'm doing true crime reporting whether in book form or magazine form I do find that being in the locales being in the locations helps me imagine and sort of help me recreate what had happened and because with this case not only was I in Kew Gardens Hills but I was also at the municipal archives where I was actually handling evidence and it was very strange because It was a closed case, but there are a lot of lingering questions as to whether Alice did it. And here I am, like, holding the clothes that her kids wore at the time and feeling like I'm contaminating the evidence. And and so as I write in the piece, like, we'll never really know what happened, but I think of Alice a lot. She'll turn 80 next year. I still have a working phone number. I've heard her voicemail. She's never returned my calls. So maybe one day she'll speak. And so that's my queen story. So I'm going to read the fir- uh, most of, but not quite all, of the first chapter of The Real Lolita. And so, uh, some of you I know have either read it or are in the middle of it. And I keep the chapters fairly short because I wanted it to read kind of like a thriller. You know, it's a road narrative. It's a question I wanted to create how is how is this poor girl this 11 year old named Sally Horner what is her what is her life like during this 21 month cross country nightmare that takes her from Camden to Atlantic City to Baltimore to Dallas and then to San Jose where she's ultimately rescued and then she only lives another two and a half years before dying in a car accident on her way back from Wildwood New Jersey and so that's when Nabokov read of her death and it was at a critical point 
while he was writing Lolita. And it, I believe, helped him to finish it. And there are a lot of clues seated in Lolita about Sally's life and her kidnapping. And there's even a line, which Humbert Humbert, the narrator, thinks, had I done to Dolly, perhaps, what Frank LaSalle, a 50-year-old mechanic, had done to 11-year-old Sally Horner in 1948. So I'll start with when they first met. Sally Horner walked into the Woolworths on Broadway and Federal in Camden, New Jersey, to steal a five-cent notebook. She'd been dared to by the clique of girls she desperately wanted to join. Sally had never stolen anything in her life. Usually she went to that particular five-and-dime for school supplies and her favorite candy. The clique told her it would be easy. Nobody would suspect a girl like Sally, a fifth-grade honor pupil and president of the Junior Red Cross Club at Northeast School, as a thief. Despite her mounting dread at breaking the law, she believed them. She had no idea a simple act of shoplifting on a March afternoon in 1948 would destroy her life. Once inside Woolworth's, Sally reached for the first notebook she spied on the gleaming white nickel counter. She stuffed it into her bag and walked away, careful to look straight ahead to the exit door. Before she could cross the threshold to freedom, she felt a hand grab her arm. Sally looked up. A slender, hawk-faced man loomed above her, iron-gray hair underneath a wide-brimmed fedora, eyes shifting between blue and gray. A scar sliced his cheek by the right side of his nose, while his shirt collar shrouded another mark on his throat. The hand gripping Sally's arm bore the traces of an even older half-moon stamp forged by fire. Any adult would have sized him up as middle-aged, but to ten-year-old Sally, he looked positively ancient. I am an FBI agent, the man said to Sally, and you are under arrest. Sally did what many young girls would have done in a similar situation. She cried. She cowered. She felt immediately ashamed. The man's low voice and steely gaze froze her in place. He pointed across the way to City Hall, the tallest building in Camden. That's where girls like her would be dealt with, he said. Sally didn't understand his meaning at first. Then he explained. To punish her for stealing, she would be sent to the reformatory. Sally didn't know that much about reform school, but what she knew was not good. She kept crying. Then his stern manner brightened. It was a lucky break for a little girl like her, he said, that he was the one who caught her and not some other FBI agent. If she agreed to report to him from time to time, he would let her go, spare her the worst, show her some mercy. Sally stopped crying. He was going to let her go. She wouldn't have to call her mother from jail, her poor, overworked mother, Ella, still struggling with the consequences of the suicide of her alcoholic husband, Sally's father, five years earlier, still tethered to her seamstress job, which meant that Sally, too often, went home to an empty house after school. But she couldn't think about that, not when she was about to escape real punishment. Any desire she felt about joining the girls' club fell away. Overcome by relief, she wouldn't face a much larger fear. Sally did not know the reprieve had an expiration date, one that would come due 
at any time without warning. Thank you. That's today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A big thank you to our sponsors over the years, LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Port Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Justin Alvarez. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Catherine Lasoto. See you next time in Queens.